Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Discover More podcast. And I do also have uh, something exciting to share with everyone. So I get about five to seven sponsorship offers a year. And for the last three years, I have turned down all of them uh, for being misaligned and just didn't really believe in the brand or the product. And all of that changes today. So I was approached recently by a neuro or cognitive enhancer drink company called Magic Mind. M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D, pretty clever branding name. I've decided to partner up with them in terms of starting this campaign called Hashtag 14 Days of Magic. That's how you can look them up. So I will be drinking Magic Minds once a day for the next 14 days to see this effectiveness in terms of enhancing my productivity and just being optimal in life without the crash of coffee or other typical caffeinated drinks. This drink only has four simple ingredients. It's matcha, which boosts your energy, which is documented by science and evidence. Adaptogens, which helps you relax after a long day or your cortisol spike. Nootropics, which keeps you focused longer, more sustainably without the crash. And lastly, honey. Let's be honest, who doesn't like a little bit of sweeteners, especially like an organic, healthy sweetener like honey for just some happy vibes. And I would love for everyone to join me in this journey and I would like to challenge all my listeners to pick up these brain boosters using my code DISCOVER14 for 20% off of one-time purchase on their website and additional 25% off of subscription-based purchases for a total of 45% off of their website. magicmind.co, M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D.co. And also the best thing about this campaign, of course, you get to support your favorite podcast and you also get to contribute to restoring one of the main Amazon rainforests called Fozenda São Nicolau. Wow, I definitely butchered that name. But we can help restore the rainforests that have been getting butchered by the excessive deforesting and the climate actions. See what I did there? And once again, to support both your favorite podcast and this deeply meaningful campaign as an environmental advocate like myself, uh, by purchasing your own brain booster, using my code DISCOVER14 when you check out at the website at magicmind.co. And for more additional information about the product, some of their medical advisory board that they have, and just insane amount of client testimonials, and their very, very evidence-backed ingredients, uh, please visit magicmind.co slash 14 days of magic. And hope you discover more with today's episode. One of the things that I thought of when I was in pain, I aspired to having a pain-free life, a life absent of pain. I don't think that's real because we feel pain for a reason. It's one of the main ways that our body communicates with us. I don't think that there is a life that a human being can live absolved of pain. A pain-free life is possible when you're free from the entrapment that pain puts on you, when you're no longer imprisoned by it, when pain no longer triggers memories and core responses of depression and frustration and anger. That's what it means to be pain-free. When you can get to a place of having pain exist but not altering yourself because of it, that's what pain-free I think truly means. And it's a beautiful place to move to. Discover More Podcast is for introspective thinkers with growth mindsets seeking authentic life stories. As a therapist, Benoit Kim highlights the magical relationship between healing and the optimal human experience of what we call life. 
cares to mental health being a top priority today and every single day. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Vinny Crispino. Vinny is a corrective exercise specialist and the founder of a popular holistic health movement, pun intended, Pain Academy, where he leans into his miraculous health transformation journey with his expertise in corrective science. With Vinny's incredible insights and over 4,000 clients transformed, which is crazy to say it out loud, Pain Academy has amassed a large following of 250,000 followers on social media, which includes holistic health advocates like the famous biohacker Dave Asprey and many more. Oh, did I also mention that he's not only a proud father of an 8-year-old, but also an 8-time All-American D1 athlete and collected over 33 Colorado state records in swimming. I'm not sure if I have 8-time in anything, let alone being an All-American athlete. (laughs) Benny, welcome to the show, man. What an introduction. Thank you. It's good being here. I want to start off from the beginning, which is a logo of your company, Pain Academy. From my research, you talked about this circular paint, almost like a paint stroke. That's the circle behind your logo. You said in the Zen Buddhism, it's recognized as an Enzo. I would love to learn more. And could you elaborate more about the ethos and how you came about the Zen design that's part of your logo now? Yeah, I'd love to. That's a, that's a great place. It's a great entry point into this. So this concept of the Enzo is in a single brush stroke making a circle. It's not having multiple tries at it. It's not trying to be perfect. It's doing what you can and accepting what is in front of you. And that's oftentimes the mentality. It's a philosophy that serves us very well with the body. A lot of us feel things and and we try to make ourselves perfect and, and we sense maybe irregularities. Maybe there's pain or discomfort and movement. And instead of taking that breath and accepting the body that we have today. We fight and force and we judge it. We resist internal sensation so much. And there's something so beautiful in the creation of an Enzo and really being connected to the single thing that's in front of you, this one action that you're taking and embodying that that philosophy on paper and bringing that same philosophy into your own movement practice that I loved. You know, I learned a lot of the academic tools. I learned a lot of the specific arts and sciences of corrective exercise, but nothing really changed until I moved away from this place of critical academic judgment on trying to make things biomechanically perfect and more towards this place of just looking at things the way they are and accepting them and working with reducing those internal judgments, that's when the nervous system really started to change, which I'm sure we can get deeply into. Yeah, I think the fascinating and intricate relationship between physiology and psychology is endlessly fascinating. And of course, in the scientific community, we know that pain is subjugated to our brain, right? That's where the pain sensation happens. And that's why a lot of people view mental health and physical health as two separate entities. The huge disconnections and huge fallacy, there are two sides of the exact same coin. So we'll definitely go into pain, which is a huge topic of the conversation. But before that, you talked about critical academic judgment, right? This extra lens you apply to make you say, oh, that's not worthy. Oh, this might work. Oh, that might not work. 
Can you elaborate more on what you mean by critical academic judgment? Yeah, the critical academic judgment. So obviously there is variation amongst all of us in, in how our joints are shaped and molded and the specific ways in which they move. But there are some commonalities that we can say. The ankle should be able to flex some 30 degrees. The hip should be able to rotate 45 degrees. There are basic certain biomechanical benchmarks that the majority of the body, majority of the body variation should fall into. Well, when you're someone like me who broke his back and started to have all of these movement disabilities and restrictions, when you can only move a hip to five degrees of rotation, you understand what the comparative, the norm is, and you see where your body's at. There's this dissonance. There's this massive gap between your body's own capacity and academically what is described as the norm where you should be at and when you learn about the body and the art of movement the science of movement through textbooks you're taught these academic norms this should happen when this movement occurs we should move from the hip and the pelvis first and then you start seeing that your body is very different and far away from what these textbooks and the academic norms are it creates this immediate emotional disturbance of this isn't good. This is bad. I'm not moving well. And it, it really starts to mess with how you perceive your own body and movement. Yeah, it's almost like the analogy of when we feel some minor headaches or some sort of a body ache, you immediately go to WebMD <laughs> and the diagnosis is terminal stage cancer. You're like, every time. You're like, what? I think I just had too much pizza last night, right? That's what I reminds me of. And it comes down to this timeless contention and this debate within the academic field in a clinical realm where is it the evidence-based practice, EBP, which is the golden standard, where evidence about evidence, everything is about, can it be replicated on the massive scale in terms of the standards of deviations and all that good stuff? But then the other side is, shouldn't it be practice-based, right? Because as you said, humans are not statistics. Humans are not going to always fit into this mold of academic norms, as you alluded to. How do you view this contention versus about adhering to this academic evidence always because it is scientism or you're like no it should be individualized and personalized to each human needs because they're all all different i understand standard deviation and the majority of us are going to fit in this certain area where action should happen i've never been in that majority in intelligence in movement in understanding in life we're talking practical application i've always felt whether a good outside the norm or maybe fallen below the norm i've never felt like i've been in that common majority so it's nice having the academic background it's great having the textbooks that explain what should and shouldn't happen I've yet to actually meet somebody who falls within those guidelines. So these, these studies, a lot of these evidence-based practices on what should or shouldn't happen, when we break away from what the textbooks are saying and we go back to our basic skill set and understanding of observing what actually is in front of us, every single person needs to be treated individually. There could be uniform principles and practices that over a large population could provide some kind of change. But when it really comes down to it, I think the majority of us are actually outside what textbooks are saying the norm is or what evidence-based practices are saying the norm is. And maybe that's just the kind of people that I have attracted, right? I don't attract the people who 
have a few chiropractic sessions and they're just great, they're good to go. I get the people where that stuff created some some serious complications and problems. So maybe it's just the nature of my work that I attract the people where the common evidence-based practices, I don't want to say have failed them, but they just weren't right for them. Their body didn't adhere or adapt or react well to the practices uh, because they were outside the norm. So I think what what I've come is because I specialize in what we could say the abnormal, it's very hard to live into the evidence-based practices because I see what they are not doing for the people who fall outside the norms, if that makes sense. Yeah, and also in academic, it's a, it's the academic biases, right? Because a lot of the randomized control trials or peer review studies are very skewed demographics. A concrete example to think about is intermediate fasting. About eight to nine years ago, intermediate fasting was it took America by storm. Everyone and their mothers were doing 16-hour gap or 18-hour gap. And then a lot of women started doing it too. And then they found out that it's actually could be detrimental to your uh, fertility ability. And they looked at the demographics of the trials and realized, oh, wait a minute, there's not a single female participants in this, the benefits of intermediate fasting. It was all male and all white. It's fascinating. Right? So of course, it's still scientific, it's still peer reviewed, and it's still evidence. However, that evidence caters to specific demographics while overlooking a lot of other aspects of the demographics that also need help or could benefit from healing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it's fascinating. So um, in terms of, I, of course, you talked about you broke your back earlier, and I know that's like the, the meat and potatoes of this podcast. So uh, might as well we can go into now and then we will talk more about what that journey taught and what have you learned from the other side. Yeah, so so really to frame it up, which I think you did a great job on, I was at the top of my game when it came to athletic competitive swimming. It was the only sport that actually came natural to me. I'd say the majority of my even childhood and, and adolescent development was literally just in a pool and understanding how to manage my body through water. So swimming was something that came really natural to me. I had set Uh, a plethora of state records, national titles. I got some incredible accolades. Being an elite swimmer defined me for many, many years. But I think like, and if you're a swimmer, you're probably going to agree with this. You get burned out, right? It, It is a very isolated sport. It's not a social sport. It's really the same thing back and forth, up and down a pool line. Uh, numerous times, countless times. And I got really burned out of swimming, but I still had a love for water. And so when I was about 18 years old, I sold everything that I had and moved out to California. I wanted to be where the weather was warm, where there were waves, and surfing just really caught my attention. It seemed like a really translatable skill set of being so calm and comfortable in the water and a strong swimmer. I thought I would become a pro in no time. Uh, My swimming skills were significantly better than my surfing skills were. And essentially what had happened was my arrogance and my ego, my confidence made me look at a double overhead wave day and say, I can do that. I can surf that. No problem. Couldn't hold my breath for minutes. Let's go. Ended up paddling into a swell that was so out far, so far outside my skill set as a surfer. I had the strength to get out to the waves, but literally the first wave that I caught, it it picked me up, 
I fumbled, and this wave threw me against the rocks over at Leo Creo in Malibu. And it was in a single moment, having never really dealt with a traumatic injury, never, you know, I, I know it might be a little arrogant to say this, but swimming came natural to me. There wasn't a lot of challenges and adversity that I faced in that sport. Of course, there was, you know, the adversity of, of facing yourself and working through, you know, what it is to be a, an athlete at that level. Um, but no trials and tribulations. And in a moment, after breaking my back on that rock and my, my T12 vertebrae hitting that rock, that sheer force of impact, I heard the crunch, I heard the crack, I heard a pop. And before I had even surfaced the water, it was just a, I messed up. I, I made a grave mistake. Before I even surfaced the water, I knew something was immediately wrong. Not only was there the tension and the, the force of impact that I felt in my back, but um, I felt my right leg flutter kick like I had done for many, many years in the pool. I think I was kicking my left leg, but I couldn't feel it. There was almost like this ghost appendage. There was a lack of sensation in my entire left leg, and I was terrified. It was the first panicked moment I think I'd ever really felt. You know, I think as, as a young man, and I think many, many young men can relate to this, you almost kind of feel invincible until you have a moment where you don't feel invincible. It's a humbling moment. And this was that humbling moment for me where I realized I wasn't bulletproof, I'm not injury proof. And I remember, you know, surfacing, gasping for air, in a state of, of basically shock. Where my surfboard was didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is where is that shoreline. And I think the years I had spent being uncomfortable in the water had prepared me for that moment. If I didn't have that background as a swimmer, I don't think I would have successfully made it to the shore as, as well as I did. And I remember just, just slowly kind of rolling over on my back, trying to do what I could with my arms, tried to do what I could with my right leg, made it over to the shore, what felt like an army crawl for miles, which I'm being dramatic, it wasn't miles, um, maybe a hundred, you know, a few hundred yards. Uh, I crawled to my car and I got in my car and I drove home. It was a very weird trauma response. You know, and I look back at it and a question I get asked a lot is, why didn't you call the paramedics? Why didn't you go straight to the hospital? I think I had learned to deal with trauma a very different way, which is not to seek help. It's to just go inward and kind of shut out the world and be by yourself. And that's exactly what I knew how to do. That was my trauma response. And, and still is to this day, you know, depending on what the situation I'm going through. And, you know, I drove home, crawled out of the car, still, still was in my wetsuit. And I just moved to my ground, uh, moved to the floor. And I stayed there for the rest of the day and into the morning and just trying to assess what had happened. I was trying to regain my breath and you know, your your brain is racing a thousand miles an hour. You're trying to figure out what's going on, what the next step is. And, you know, the next day I eventually drove myself to the hospital. And, and that really was what started this journey of being now disabled. It was a very disabling moment in my life. And I think I, from there, experienced what the vast majority of people do when they get injured. You go through the proper protocols in the channels, you get the, the MRIs, you get the x-rays, you see specialists, you go see their referrals, you get opinions and second opinions, you exhaust yourself financially, physically, and emotionally, and, and you try as many different 
therapeutic modalities as possible. And, and at some point you try the unconventional, you try to find the gurus out there when the more common traditional therapeutic approaches fail. And I'm really kind of summarizing what it was like to live with a, a broken back for five, six years. It took about 18 months or so for the herniations to start healing for the vertebrae, the actual place where I fractured my back took about 18 months or so for that to actually fully heal. But once the healing uh, was finished, I was still in disabling amounts of pain and I still couldn't stand, still could barely walk for more than a couple minutes without looking for where's the closest chair? Where can I sit down immediately? And to go from this elite athlete to scanning your environment always for places that you can sit down because standing hurt, dreading the moment where you had to bend forward to put shoes on. God forbid something were to drop, you were to drop your phone or your car keys. It was just these little things that I never once thought of being a capable athlete were now dominating my emotional bandwidth. And every single day, every moment was a carefully calculated decision on what can I do to experience the least amount of electrifying pain in my back. And that was life for the better part of my 20s. Very long time I lived like that. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And I would love to put your brain at that moment of impact or that 18 months because your nervous system probably fired every stress signals that you had in your entire physiology because I can't even imagine that shift. It was to what I can only describe as the extreme of sympathetic nervous system activation. We're talking fight, flight, or freeze. I was stuck in the fight and I was stuck in the freeze. Muscles were catatonic. There was no gentleness. There was no fluidity with movement. Everything was jerky and stiff. If you would have put your hands anywhere on my back, you would have felt stiff piano wires. That's what my muscles were doing. When I look back on it, I'm thankful for this. My nervous system was literally trying to develop an internal stabilization system to prevent further damage from occurring, but to experience that autonomic nervous system response of freezing up and not being able to calm down that freeze for at least 18 months, it was stressful. I had as I alluded to earlier, I had received minor injuries, just I think the common repetitive overuse injuries that most swimmers get, shoulder issues, tendonitis, rotator cuff problems. But whenever I developed those minor appendage injuries, there was always a workaround. If you hurt your arm, great, let's do core work. Let's strengthen the legs. If you hurt your knee or your foot, okay, let's put a buoy between the legs Let's isolate the arms and just do a lot of paddle work. There was always workarounds for any minor injury that I had ever experienced. This was the first time there was no workaround. It shift, the point of impact shifted my spine 21 degrees laterally to the left. There was no moving through that. There was no strengthening other components. When the spine is damaged like that and there's that severe of an injury, it's within every movement that you do that triggers symptoms. So finding comfort was the goal. There was no rehabilitation. There was no trying to train the body at that point. It was just, how do you survive through the day? What position can you stay in on the ground? How can you walk with the least amount of dis discomfort? It was a very big challenge for a long time. 
it's so fascinating because every single person that comes with fascinating background and insights, they all went through some unimaginable and unspeakable physical or mental trauma. But then a lot of people now only focus on PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm a veteran, so PTSD is very prevalent in my community, right? But a lot of people don't talk about post-traumatic growth. And a lot of people, including yourself, of course, you went through a period of heartache, emotional stage, and earth-shattering, life-altering, career-ending, right? Whatever shattering movements, and once again, pun intended, I'm trying to squeeze as much pun as possible throughout this interview because of the nature of the topics. But a lot of people, including yourself, with the intentions, with the convictions, consistency, work ethics, whatever adjectives you want to throw at it, you can come out from the other side through this phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. And that growth is profound, to say the least. And only people who experience it knows. And there's so many things that you talked about, like the fact that you hated swimming, but you never lost water as your sanctuary. You all could always find peace and the zenness that we started this episode with. So I'm also curious about that. And of course, your life-altering injury also shattered your identity as this elite athlete that you also alluded to. So there's a lot, but I will dissect one by one. But let's start from help-seeking aspect. Because a lot of high achievers and high-level caliber folks like yourself, I realize this trend and I fall for this at times as well, right? Because to get to where you are, self-sufficiency was the operational point. That's the root cause of your existence is self-sufficient, to be the best in your case in a swimming realm. But that self-sufficient tendency becomes a greater roadblock to seek help when you need it. We'll start with where I'm at now. It's despite everything I've been through, it's incredibly hard for me to ask for help now. And I've had to do a lot of reflection on that, breaking my back and having a traumatic injury and and literally going from a place of being incredibly self-sufficient and really independent to there is no independence when that happens. Friends and family members, loved ones, are you are reliant on them to bring you food, to do your laundry. There was an immediate thrust from being independent to now being entirely dependent on somebody else. That was a very emotionally challenging thing for me. I think when I look back, it, it really stems from, you know, just to give some context here, my father was born in the 1940s in the in Brooklyn, uh, sorry, in Bronx, New York. There were so many times where I had, you know, injuries or issues and as a kid, just just walk it off. You're fine. You don't need help. We don't need to go see the doctor. And I get it. You know, money wasn't always a very abundant thing when we were younger. So the last go-to, first go-to option was not let's go to the emergency room or let's get professional help. I remember I once uh, in, in a little park accident sliced off the tip of my left finger and it's literally dangling there and he's trying to find band-aids. He's trying to find band-aids to just bandage my finger back on and you know, it's just, we don't need any help from anybody. We don't need handouts. You can do everything you need to do by yourself. That was embedded in my core as a child. And it's why I struggled and only hit certain levels an athlete. Probably would have gone a lot further if I would have accepted the help of coaches, but I pushed away a lot of that help. Breaking my back, I was forced to be more reliant on other people and seeking help, but I was still very internally resistant. I questioned 
the people that I was paying tremendous amounts of money to, the experts, I still rejected their opinions as if, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I can't stand up and I'm telling the person, I'm, the professional in front of me that, that I know better than them. It was, a, it was a very big challenge. And it's something that, that I still you know, work through. To this day, I'm better about it. But I think I learned the hard way. If I would have been more susceptible to seeking help and actually accepting that help and not being so stubborn throughout the entire healing process, who knows? Maybe instead of it taking 10 years to heal, it would have taken only a few. It took a while for me to see my role that I played in healing. And there were so many things I was doing to sabotage my health and sabotage my ability to heal that I wasn't aware of at the time. But now looking back on it, I see how stubborn, uh, stubborn and resilient I was to help at the time. And I think that really shaped a lot of, of what I now do and how I help people. Yeah, because there's no such thing as a better path. There's only the path that you chose and you ended up embarking on. And then because I used to believe in this concept of accelerated learning, but I realized that I think you learn what you learn and there is a timeline for everyone. And of course, that timeline differs from one to one. But that's exactly why I asked you this question, because in our qualitative process for the pre-interview, you talked about you have this deep capacity for empathy. You have this deep desire to help people, inspire people, and provide healing, whatever that may look like. Yet, ironically, you are yourself not someone that's susceptible to receiving help. And I saw that stark contrast. That's why I wanted to see where you take us. Because I find that interesting that someone like you, who have so much to give, and you are giving tremendously, yet you have the hardest roadblock is to actually receive help as a health provider. And I find that identity or this dichotomy very, very fascinating. Yeah. And the, the biggest thing that I can speak towards that is what I do and how I help people is by giving them the skills, the knowledge, and the tools so they can help themselves. And by the time somebody gets to me, it's not, their, it's not because they just had a traumatic injury or they just experienced pain for the first time in their life. They're coming to me probably because they're in a very similar place that I was years after going through the medical system. Although it's great for many issues and conditions, it wasn't doing what it needed to do for me partially because of who I am as a person and how hard it was to uh, just blindly kind of trust and, and, and accept others' opinions. That was very challenging for me. And what I have built is a system that allows people to understand themselves their way. It's allowing people to build a movement practice that they think suits them, that they feel is best for them. And this really goes into me not telling people what to do, but me literally pointing the way and it's up to them how far and how fast that they actually want to move. This is a uh, the systems that I've built, the programs and the technologies that I've built are not about me being the expert. They're about that person being the expert. And if they want to understand their own expertise and develop the capacity to give themselves help, this is that system for them, which is really challenging for a lot of people because a lot of people want to be told what to do. You know, they don't want to discover what works well and what doesn't work well for them. They just want to be diagnosed and given the prescription of go do X, Y, and Z every single day and you'll be fine. That's not what this is because that's not who I am. 
Yeah, and then if that were the case, then integration, which is where the magic and healing happens, is missing. That's why they have to be able to internalize and receive the toolkits, as you call them, then internalize and process, integrate to their daily life because Vinny's life is different from Kathy's or whoever, in, insert the names, right? Yeah, and that, that integration is key. I believe the majority of people do not find the success or results that they are looking for because of the missing integrative piece. It doesn't feel real to them because they're following what worked for somebody else. There isn't that taking education and information and awareness and learning how to apply that information to then integrate that so it feels real. It's just borrowed information. And the current state of social media, here's three exercises. If it, you know, all this rapid firing of it's not sticking with people, it's not helping people because it doesn't feel real to them. There's no integration. There's no uh, internalizing. Why are we really even doing this? What is the actual problem that we're trying to solve for? And until these problems are internalized and there's integration, a life has not changed. It just so begets the the hamster wheel of spinning around the same hamster wheel that I was stuck in for years. So Vinny, you're saying that we can't just look up a headliner one sentence on Twitter and expect our life will be changed overnight? That's what I'm saying. That one headline could maybe plant the seed for something to change, but until something is understood and until somebody is educated in a stable point of entry about what is the real problem and what are the things that need to change and integrates that change, they're just going to be continually searching headline after headline after headline with probably not much change. Yeah, this is a especially resonating topic for me because I'm a clinician in mental health and in therapy settings, too many people view that one hour session a week that spent cost $100 or whatever as end all be all as, oh, I did my work by going to see this professional clinician for one hour a week. It's like, no, that's the navigation GPS system to show you where the healing lies according to your path. But that work, the integration comes after the therapist. After you put in your one hour a week, then you journal, you do your homework, you reflect, you think about how is the insight that was given to me or that I talked about from my session, how can I apply that to my other aspects of my life? Because with stress and pain, it's not just subjugated to one domain. It always spills over because stress is whole. And to fight and minimize stress, which is whole, you also require a whole approach, which is where the integration lies. So I think this is a very, very important topic for both physical health, but also mental health. Yeah, and the, the two overlap because it's, it's one body. And what it takes to change physical health is the same recipe that it takes to change that mental health. And you hit it on the head. When I was a young man, I thought swiping my credit card and paying the physical therapist or paying the practitioner for that time frame, maybe it was once a week at 30 minutes, maybe two to three times a week. I thought that was me doing my part. I'm exchanging my time and appointments and money for a result. And there were so many people that I went through and it's it's really no knock on them because I understand that a lot of people will do just kind of the basic what their level of understanding is with their job. They're not asking, did you do your homework? What are you learning? What showed up for you this week in between our appointments? 
what is happening outside of our time together, that's the real change. If there's a hundred and I think it's what, 168 hours in a week, if we're only going to spend one of them together, that's not enough. There's no way it's enough. And I didn't understand that until I actually met a physical practitioner that we didn't do movements together. We talked about application and we talked about integration. Our sessions were not learning cool, new, sexy, funky movements that will razzle and dazzle. It's let's talk about the work outside the session. What was done? What are you noticing? What's changing? How are you tracking your progress? How are you looking for results? We're talking about the work that it really takes, the journaling and the daily involvement, the integration. I didn't know that that was missing until six years into this healing process and having mentored many practitioners and I start talking about our work should be more about integration and less just giving people tools. Let's give them the tools and then teach them how to integrate them. A response I often get is, yeah, but they're not going to do it. I think a lot of people lose faith in other people's abilities, which is why these things are not really taught on an integration level. So it's the integration that that's the main thing. And I remember dealing with you know, my own mental health issues and, and first getting a therapist. Again, my mistake was thinking it was that hour a week and that was enough. I'm in therapy. I'm going to rely on that therapist to do, to tell me what I need to do, give me the tools and I'm good. And it wasn't until I had to go through multiple therapists until I found the one that talked about integration. That's the key. That's the, that's the magic sauce here. It's not the tools. It's how we integrate those tools. Yeah, and a lot of cliches happen when I do these podcasts, but I believe cliches are tropes. And there's a lot of truth that's been, that's withstood the test of time in these cliches. And one that comes to my mind now is that you get out what you put in, period. And you cannot just view your healing as transactional, as you alluded to, because transactions don't heal. You put in the work consistently over time, day in and day out, whether it's in the swimming pool, outside, whether it's in your job office, or doing your mobility movements that we'll talk a lot about, you have to put in the work. And it also disheartens me that a lot of practitioners, they lack faith in humans' capacity for change. Because that's what that comes down to. You're like, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do psychoeducation. I'm only going to provide them concrete, easily memora- uh, memorized techniques, and my job is done. But it's like, well... You have your professional training, whatever field that you're in, and you have the ability to provide psychoeducation. So why not? Because you don't know what's going to click for the people like the, the plant we talked about, right? Maybe that one headliner will plant the seed for the healing that come maybe four years later. And maybe that one psychoeducation session, the one thing you told a patient or a client, it might click and change that person's life years or even months down the road. But we as leaders and practitioners, we have to do our due diligence by doing everything we can for the clients and patients. Otherwise, what are we getting paid for? I read this this book a while ago, which was titled The Gradual Path. And it is it, it really talks a lot about spirituality and a lot of, uh, let's just call it Westerners. And I was very much in this demographic as well. I thought healing was spontaneous. Kind of like what you talked about, right? Maybe it's that one session, it's that one word or sentence or conversation that creates that radical change. And I had in various moments in my life, breaking my back was a spontaneous change. 
I had kind of only geared my mentality towards looking for those huge, spontaneous changes. And those happen. Those are very real and they happen a lot. But when I started to learn that if you can take the gradual path towards change, it's the gradual path that's going to pay off big time. And one of the biggest mistakes I made in trying to heal early on was I was only looking for the spontaneous exercises. What's the one thing that's really going to dial it in? I was looking for those magical moments and I had forgotten that it is a gradual path to enlightenment. It is a gradual path of, of many days and many practices that really lead towards the changes that we're looking for. And shifting that narrative away from the spontaneous, those radical big, big bang moments back towards what is a practice that can gradually get us there, that, that was a huge fork in the road moment for me as well. Yeah. And once again, the underlying theme is that you have to accept your responsibility in healing, right? Because this is a very hot topic. Could be, it's like the saying of whatever happens to you, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to come out of on the other side because you're responsible for your life, not the doctor, not the PT, not the corrective science specialist. You are ultimately responsible for your life. So I think that really matters. I want to ask you a quote. I know that you trained at Eagle Skew University for posture alignment, and I did some research in the founder, and he's like a prolific author in terms of pain, mobility. He has this quote, and I want to ask you about your thoughts on this quote. His quote is, pain is not something to be feared. It is something to be understood. And as you both know, pain is entirely subjective to the individual experiencing it. So do you have any thoughts on that quote, and what is your own perception and definition of what pain truly is? Pain to me is just a signal. That's it. It is just a sensation, just like many other sensations are in our body. I do agree with that quote. However, we process pain in the same area and region of the brain that we also process fear. Pain is designed to alert us. Even though it is just a sensation and a signal, it is of a different nature because it's designed to get our attention in a different way. It is the alarm bells of our body that something is not right. Something is happening that should not be happening. And it is a danger warning sign that should be treated as such, but nothing more and nothing less. It's the attachment that we put on pain. I believe, you know, when I was hurting on the ground, I wasn't just feeling a disc herniation between my L3, L4, and L5, I was feeling the pain of not being a capable human being anymore. It was the memories of pain. It wasn't just the acute stabbing sensation. It was, I haven't been in love in years because of pain. I haven't had close relationships for years. I had put so much emotion and weight into pain that I was incapable of seeing it as just a sensation anymore. So it is something to not be feared, but it takes a lot of work to get to the place of detaching a lot of the emotions and a lot of the memories that are tied to pain. Pain is something that is incredibly subjective to each and every person that should not be dismissed. It should be understood. One of the main things that I teach in my program, there is the physical aspect, but there is also a meditation course in which with no movement, I teach people how to look at and view their pain in an entirely different way. 
What color is it? What shape is it? Does it have a temperature to it? What are the associations that we've placed on pain so we can understand it better? And it's through that understanding we can start to change our relationship with it. I think at the start, many people are just trying to get out of pain. They just don't want to feel a sensation anymore. And it's this resistance to this sensation that naturally puts people down the path of suppression. Let me try to numb myself with drugs. Let me try to avoid it. Let me escape it. Let me distract myself. I'll do anything I can to not feel the sensation. And it's that resistance that ultimately determines how long you're actually going to be having this pain for. If you can lean into the pain, I'm not saying force yourself or or intentionally re-injure yourself, but if you can learn to sit with that sensation and understand it better, understand how does it change your emotions? How does it change your breathing rate? What does it do to your body and your emotions and mentality? If we can lean in and understand it better, we have a much better chance of it going away. One of the things that I thought of when I was in pain, I aspired to having a pain-free life, a life absent of pain. I don't think that's real because we feel pain for a reason. It is our bo- it's one of the main ways that our body communicates with us. I don't think that there is a life that a human being can live absolved of pain. A pain-free life is possible when you're free from the entrapment that pain puts on you. When you're no longer imprisoned by it, when pain no longer triggers memories and core responses of depression and frustration and anger, that's what it means to be pain-free. When you can get to a place of having pain exist but not altering yourself because of it, that's what pain-free I think truly means. And it's a beautiful place to move to. I think the ultimate source of pain-free life is death, period, right? That's because it. That's it. If you're, if you're dead, it's pure bliss and no pain for sure. But I don't know if that's a path that one want to go down to, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I think we can feel better before then, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I think there's other ways to uh, minimize pain or rewire or restructure our perception of pain is a more sustainable and holistic way, which is, of course, the ethos of Pain Academy doing healing and approaching healing the most holistic whole system approach as possible because any sustainable change systematic or not requires whole system approach period i want to follow up on this train that to you benny what has how has your perception of pain and the way you view pain shifted over the course of your journey i hated pain so much that it not only reshaped my entire identity, but it it fundamentally rewired how I moved and the movements I chose and the feelings I felt when I would, before I would even move. I knew I was awake in the morning because I would sense pain first and then my eyes would open and then I felt like my brain would start turning on here. Pain was was the anchor at which it was the only sensation I really felt on a day-to-day basis all day long. As I've learned to change my relationship with pain, it means nothing to me right now. And as I embark on the journey of what it takes to become elite endurance athlete training for ultra marathons, we're talking 50 to 100 mile races. Now pain is a voluntary action. It is something that I choose to go live into. And you know maybe this might take us down a rabbit hole, but there was a very interesting period of time in my healing where 
I was so used to pain being there. It was a chronic thing. It was acute pain that turned into chronic. When I started healing, I didn't like it because I didn't have that feeling there anymore. Sorry, you meant uh, you don't have the sensation of pain anymore? Correct. Yeah. So going from a chronic acute pain state for years and then things actually starting to move and feel better, it was very uncomfortable to not experience pain all the time. And the only way I can really describe it is if you've ever lived in a city, you're very used to all the uh, ambient noise, the cars, the people, the honking, everything. And then if you ever move to the countryside and it's quiet, it's kind of uncomfortable for those first few nights. It's actually hard to sleep with all that, that white noise. And this is why people turn on TVs or radios or just play something to kind of become more comfortable because that overstimulation is what their nervous system was used to. Well, much in the same way, the pain was the overstimulation. Being in that sympathetic state of fight, flight, freeze was so normal to me now that relaxing was uncomfortable. This was the moment in my life where I got a lot of tattoos and I didn't understand it at the time. But when I started to have the absence of pain, I started to look for other ways of pain. What are other avenues of pain? Because that was all I knew. Having discomfort was my way of, it was my new identity. And I didn't know what to do without having pain. And this is why, probably one of the main reasons why you see so many decorations on my skin. It was my way of actually coping with healing and not having that blaring pain signal 24-7. And once I really understood that, I started running out of real estate with my skin. I started to understand what does it mean to actually, it, it is okay to feel good. You do deserve that. You can feel okay. You don't need to have trauma and pain to feel all right. And there were a couple years where I was really living in peace with that. And then ultra marathon training entered the picture and it was a new kind of pain. It was a very interesting relationship as my, my relationship with pain developed. Now it's chosen. And I think that was the really important distinction. When I was first injured, it was not chosen. It was not voluntary. It was something that happened to me. And because it happened to me, I had this victim mentality and this mindset towards it. And as my relationship with it evolved, now it's something that's more chosen. It's the ball's in my court. I get to choose how I feel. And I'm still trying to understand my relationship to it. It still shows up in various ways. On days that I feel good, those are days that I'll go for 20, 20 mile runs just to feel uncomfortable again. So I'm still trying to myself understand it, but it's no longer something that I resist and I fear. It's something that I welcome because it helps me understand myself, my mentality, my emotions, and my physical sense of being. Yeah, the best way to learn yourself, oneself, is through pain teachers, period. Because through hardships, through tribulations and trials, you get to learn what you're capable of and your capacity for change. Um, I just recently interviewed a USC professor, and she's also a psychotherapist, and we talked about addiction. And that's the topic I want to go into. Because even with addiction, of course, addiction is a neurobiological disease. I didn't know there was still debate about that, but it is a brain disease, period. At the same time, let's say someone is struggling with cigarette addiction. You smoke whatever packs a day. You always have a choice, which is what you're talking about, Vinny, to replace that smoking habit with candies or maybe pizza. I'm not saying candies is a healthier alternative, but the point is you have the power to substitute and replace 
whatever you don't like about your life or your pain or your movement with something that's alternative or even better. But we have to recognize how much capacity for change that we truly have. Otherwise, there is no healing. If you don't believe you can heal, what's the point, right? What's the point of reading every single scientific articles out there? What's the point of following Pain Academy on Instagram and watching amazing content? If you don't believe you can change, there is no change, period. Um, so I just want to highlight this because that's the theme of what you're just saying. But then never underestimate how much capacity we truly have within us, period. Because empowerment is from within. One of the, I love what you just said. And one of the things that I have trained my team on, and it's it's still a topic of conversation, we're actually changing our enrollment process into our online programs to it actually being an application. And one of the questions on the application, literally that we condition, if we think somebody is a good fit, is the very simple question, do you think you can heal? Are you willing to make a change in your life? And if the answers are no, we're not a good fit. Not because your physiology can't adapt, not because we can't teach you and show you amazing things. If you fundamentally don't believe that you can make a change, there is nothing I can do for you. There's no way I can possibly help you. And through the insane amount of direct messages and emails we get, my team and I are always on the lookout for the person who is not skeptical in what we do. I welcome skepticism. Everybody should be skeptical. If you're not, we're not doing enough research to understand what it is we're about to get ourselves into. So my team is not sensitive to skepticism. They are sensitive to doubt. If this person is doubting their ability to change, we're not a good fit. Yeah, I think we'll see if we go down this train because this is a long train. But do you have any ideas or knowledge about biology of belief? Because that's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, uh, surface level. I've, I've seen some surface level studies talking about what happens when you tell a group the placebo effect that you're giving them medication, but you're not actually giving them the medication, how that group can change sometimes more than the group that was actually given medication. There is a huge component to this. And when I tell people that the way you think and feel is half of the problem, it's going to be half of the solution. If, if you don't agree with that, again, I think we're going to be very limited in how we can help you. Yeah, so I want to, it's even deeper than just placebo, which is positive expectations of the substance it's given. There's also nocebo effect, which is having negative anticipatory expectations about the drug that's given to you. And it worsens your health outcome. So aside from those, even deeper, and I don't think this is the place, I don't want to geek out too much, but I want to share Please. something so <laughs> listeners can do more. So a couple interesting studies is they study this person with multi-personality uh, associative disorders. And one of this person's personality is allergic, deathly allergic to tree nuts and peanuts, right? But then through the biology of belief, this person under a clinical hypnosis was conditioned and reconditioned to believe that he is no longer allergic to this peanuts or tree nuts. And they did a retest again under the different personality. He has zero allergen, zero reactions to the same substance that will kill the exact same human under a different personality. And there's a lot of amazing research has done in terms of allergen, where you can actually, under hypnosis or other clinical techniques that's tested and safe and guided, you can actually eradicate your smoking habits or you can eradicate a lot of the allergies that you have. And that simply comes down to the biology of belief. And it's a 
fascinating topic. I would encourage people to even take a pause of the episode and check it out and come back. But it's very, very fascinating that the limitless potential that we have, the trigger and the catalyst is that we first have to believe it first, period. I experienced this, what you're talking about firsthand, when probably about six months into the first real mentor that I had with movement, still in quite a significant amount of disability and pain at this point. And my mentor demonstrated a really what looked like complicated variation of an inchworm. So I would stand up, bend forward, which was kind of a no-go motion for me. And I would walk my hands out into a push-up position. And then I would slowly step my feet, walk them up towards my hand, and then repeat, copy, paste, repeat this. And this motion terrified me because historically, bending forward was a nightmare for me. Before I even tried it, I said no can't do that. That's going to cause pain. And my mentor looks at me and says, well, how do you know? You haven't done it today. And I said, well, I know this because of what I know about my body and what every historically, every time I bent forward, it's hurt. And he looks at me and sharply says, and I know he pulled this quote in in hindsight, I know he pulled this quote from somewhere. He said, the more you argue for your limitations, the more you get to keep them. And I was mad at him. I was pissed because he was right. And that was my first experience of my beliefs are controlling my future. They're controlling certain current circumstances. My own limitations, how I'm thinking and how I'm feeling are completely controlling my healing process. I'm not in control of them. It's my beliefs are automatically controlling what I'm capable of. And it wasn't until I shed those beliefs and changed those beliefs, which I did in that moment, I trusted it. I believed I could do this motion and the video, and I wish I had it. You can literally see the spine, the counter rotation start to get taken out. And you can actually see that lumbar scoliosis start to move over towards the middle in this single moment of an exercise. It was one of those spontaneous things because of belief, my belief system changed. And that was my first experience that your mind is far more powerful than, than what you think it is. Yeah, this might be outdated research, but a few years ago, they said we know more about the stars and the galaxy than we know of our own minds or our brain. And just think about that. That's so fascinating to me. And there's so much to be discovered more about. Um, but once again, I think if you were to accept that you can change, then that's a good, great starting point for whatever avenue you want to go down towards. Speaking of belief, I want to ask you about another quote that you posted about on your Instagram that I love. It's by Marcus Aurelius. He talked about if it is humanly possible, consider it to be within your reach. What do you think about that quote and anything you want to elaborate more? I think about that quote and I use it often when I post pictures of scoliosis case studies. And here we see somebody's spine is twisted, the rib cage is contorted, very misaligned musculoskeletal structure. When I post these case studies, the amount of direct messages I get of other people experiencing similar things. How oh, can I do that? Oh, I, I'm hopeless. I wish I could do something like that. If that one person can do it, consider it completely within the realm of possible for you. That's what I mean when I put that quote up there. And that quote resonates so much with me because if one person can recover from a debilitating, life-altering injury, you can too. Your healing is probably going to be incredibly different your journey, the movements, the exercises, your integration is going to look different. But if one person has shown the way, it can be done. It's the same thing with the mile world record. Nobody thought 
four minutes could be broken. And it took that one person doing it. And now how many athletes are shattering what people didn't think was even possible? I think it's a matter of time until the two-hour marathon is going to be shattered by many people. It was done once, but it's, it's the same thing. If one person can do it, consider it within reach for you to do it. Maybe not to that extent, or maybe significantly better. A change is possible. I think it's possible in all of us. Yeah, shout out to Roger, uh, Roger Bannisters or Roger Banners in 1950s. And if I recall correctly, within six months to a year, three or former athletes broke that, uh, broke that world record. And now elite high school runners can break that record that was perceived as humanly impossible only 60 years ago. Yeah, it goes back to the belief of biology. It takes somebody doing it once, and then the belief system changes in other people saying, oh, I think this can be done. And then they go out and do it. It's all about belief system. Yeah, it's fascinating. I have a personal curiosity for you, but I wanted to start off with that quote because I also love that quote as well. Addiction, right? I tabled it earlier. I asked that question and I think addiction is a prevalent topic for most elite athletes. Rich Roll comes to my mind, right? Um, I know he lives in Malibu somewhere. He talks often about when he was a, a drug addict, right? Substance addict. He replaced that addiction with ultra marathon. And it, he also exhibits addiction for helping people, right? And I feel like even with your real estate analogy, I've never heard people describe tattooing as real estate with your skin. So I'm going to steal that saying from me from now on because I have a few. I noticed that tendency from you too is you're like, oh no, what is this great, amazing recovery feeling I'm feeling? It's like, no, 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 I got to self-sabotage this and inflict some pain. How do you view addiction? And then how have you own dealt with your addiction? Like, do you have any vices? Because as you said, as soon as you're healed after 13 years on the other side, now you're immediately putting yourself through this new level of pain, which is running 50 to 100 miles. I wish I had advice for addiction. I think I've tr just transformed it along the way. I like to think that the addiction I'm now going through, which is the addiction to, to endorphins and chosen pain and pushing yourself and learning that whole realm of things, I like to think it's better for me than when I was addicted to prescription medication back when I was just given an unreasonable amount of access to narcotics back when I was in that peak of my injury. I think it's just changed from one thing to the next. At first it was drugs and it took seeing my son and not being an emotional available father to break that addiction of prescription drugs, not being there for him in the way that he needed me to be. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example really quick. So I had him when I was 24 years old. I broke my back when I was 20. I was very involved with prescription medication for about five or six years. So this means a few years into his birth, I still had access to a auto refill of narcotics every month without having an appointment with a physician. It was just an automatic renewal. And I remember him starting to develop his neurological issues and he's, he's having seizures, he's spasming and he needs me. And I'm just kind of aloof. I'm just not there. And I've got this completely dependent person that I love more than I can even articulate reaching for me. And I'm just, I'm not there. I'm just kind of spaced out. I'm zoned out. And that was the moment that changed, okay, I need a different addiction here. 
right? I need to change. So when I stopped having the, when I stopped being addicted to, to the narcotics, which was a very challenging, there was a huge withdrawal period with that. I found the addiction to work. And I, instead of dealing with emotions and dealing with the healing process, I just tried to make it about money and I became addicted to making money. And I started a business and I started to have 60 sessions a week, one-on-one -on -one sessions a week. That's wow. an addiction. It was an addiction to helping people. It was an addiction to making money. It was addiction to being successful. I don't know what it's like to not have an addiction towards something. I don't. And I think over the time, as I've relaxed the addiction to money and success, and I've transferred this into an addiction into health and into doing these incredibly long endurance cardio events and and what it takes to shape and mold the body to be able to do that. I like to think it's healthier. And in many aspects, it is healthier than a drug addiction. But I often wonder what it would be like to just be okay with not having to work hard. What it would be okay to have a day off and enjoy it and not look at it as a setback. This is going to monumentally impact my max VO2. This is going to mess with my baseline heart rate. I want to know what that's like. And I think one day I'll get there but that, that's not right now. So my, my hope for people is for those who are struggling in addiction, I, I don't think anything can change without awareness. And even though I was checking all the boxes doing my rehabilitation work, I was addicted to being in pain. It just took a very long time for me to see how I was sabotaging myself and keeping myself in pain. I didn't see for the longest time that being chronically disabled served me really well. It allowed me to not really connect with people. It allowed me to not really be emotional and vulnerable and open. It allowed me always a back door out of saying I can't do things. And what took a really long time for me to see my addiction to pain clearly was it was a excuse not to succeed. Oh, I couldn't be a runner, my back hurts. Oh, I, I can't go play with my kid, my back hurts. I was so afraid of feeling good and being successful and being okay and being comfortable and happy that pain for me was the excuse out of that life. And nothing really changed until I kind of shed that excuse, until I started to have the deeper conversations with a therapist that it is okay to be happy. It is okay to be comfortable in life. You don't need to always be living in a trauma response. You can move yourself towards a life of enjoyment. You can be fulfilled in life. Not everything has to be pain and trauma. You can enjoy things and it's okay to enjoy things. And I had forgotten for a really long time what that was like. Outside of the generic advice, get yourself a therapist. Please do it. Everybody should do it. Whether you think you have mental health issues or not, I think everybody could use a licensed qualified professional to have as a sounding board to just work through whatever you're experiencing. It's really helpful. And I was very resistant to that idea for the longest time, going back to my childhood. I don't need a therapist. I'm fine. I can work on myself myself. I like the responsibility there, but it was also really helpful to talk to people who knew what they were doing. <laughs> and you can always do both. Like we live in a world of, or you can think for yourself and work on yourself by yourself, plus see a therapist. You can do both. I was obsessed with or. The word or, I can either do this or I can do that. There's an and, and there is an and in there for all of us. You can work on yourself and you can get professional help. I encourage every single person to do that. Yeah, and in the clinical field, we call that 
uh, exhibiting all or nothing or black or white thinking. And uh, those tendencies will lead down to catastrophic thinking, which you will just extreme extremify whatever lanes of or patterns of thought. And it could be very detrimental for your own mental health. And as we, I know that we were talking about evidence-based practice isn't always the golden standard we held them to be, but the baseline is please seek licensed, professionally trained person because everyone and their mothers think they're experts nowadays and that is not the case. It takes years and Vinny himself took 13 plus years to get to where you are uh, looking at the other side, right? Yeah, and I, I didn't actually, a couple years into after breaking my back, somebody said I wasn't ready to heal. I wasn't emotionally ready to heal. And they said I needed to work on my mental well-being. I immediately wanted to flip this person off and walk away. To me, breaking my back was very physical. I saw the break on the x-ray. I saw the damage. There was a physical problem. Not once for the first eight years of healing did I ever stop to think how I feel, how I think, my emotions, my capacity to be vulnerable. I mean, we're talking mental health. Not once did I think that was actually a part of the problem until my first psychotherapy session. And being asked basic questions I didn't have the answers to made me realize how much this is a 50-50 problem. It is going to take working on mental health, my addiction. It is going to take my attachment to being disabled the benefits that I see as being disabled, it's going to take me working on that mentality just as much as it's going to take actually giving my nervous system the cues to physiologically adapt through exercise. It takes both. And I, I truly, after what I've been through and what I've helped guide thousands of people through, I do not believe a change can happen with just one or the other. I think it's an and. It takes both to change. We must change our physical state to change our mental state. Our mental state can change our physical state. It is a bi-directional relationship, and I have yet to see one comes first. It's always both interplaying with each other simultaneously. And the cool thing about humans is that a lot of biohackers, they talk about this, Dave Asprey being one of them, as I alluded to. You can either use your physiology as entry point to work on your psychology or conversely, you can use your psychology as a safe entry point to work on your physiology. And it is bi-directional, as Vinny said. And that leaves room for a lot of innovations and opportunities that you feel like, oh, I don't want to work on my mental health at this very moment. It's fine. Work on your physiology, but have this awareness that two are, it's, it is a complex interplay and that healing requires this interconnectivity between the two 100 percent. yeah and, and movement and therapy are both very stable points of entry at creating a change both very stable points and they're going to change maybe daily for you which one you want to enter the body through first but they're both great points and both are great ways to move through your life pun intended another one <laughs> yeah. um so i watched a great video on your store on your instagram about the long game right very well done. I like the ethos in that messaging of that video. Given the amount of golden nuggets and insights, I have decided to make this into a two-part series. What can you expect by joining us on next Monday? You can expect to learn more about long game versus short game, especially in healing aspects, power of community and healing, calculated risks versus fulfillment, how to easily and effectively read research paper by parsing through not so robust evidence out there. 
the reality of running a seven-figure business, and much more. I hope you join us in next week's Discover More and take away whatever you can take away to empower your life so you can show up better every single day. See you next time. Thank you.